Hello and welcome to Built Environment Matters, a monthly podcast brought to you by Bride and Wood, an international company of technologists, designers, architects, engineers and analysts working for a better built environment. Bride and Wood believe in design to value, to cut carbon, drive efficiency, save time, make beautiful places and build a better future. Hi and welcome to this episode of Built Environment Matters, the Brydenwood podcast. I'm Jamie Johnson, Head of Global Systems, and this is part two of my conversation with Professor Jackie Glass, who's Professor of Construction Management at University College London. Uh, so coming back to the semantics, um, yeah, that's an ongoing problem that I don't know how we resolve it. I mean, I've, I've had, I certainly remember it being really difficult in B- the days of BIM when it was first mandated, that one of the genius things I thought Mark Bew did was ne- not try and uh, define what BIM is, is saying you'll understand the outcomes once we're doing it, which was brilliant in one way, because he's saying you could spend two years defining it, but <laughs> painful in another way, because people spent two years arguing about what, what it meant. We're getting a similar thing with modern methods of construction now, we're getting a similar thing with platforms, there's a sort of a um, uh, yeah a growing number of these terms that are sort of starting to burgeon all over the place, which is uh, increasingly painful. I wonder if you can talk a bit more about that and the sort of challenges it creates and the sort of, you know, the, the miscommunication sometimes that, that must get in the way and you must see it an awful lot more maybe when there's there's so many of these sort of um, uh, stakeholders bumping together at the points of interface that, that you're looking at. Well, it's it's a perennial challenge. But the, the interesting thing for me is that some academics will spend their entire careers trying to define a term. And actually, in academic life, that is an entirely legitimate way to spend your time. Um, because it is about clarification and understanding and positioning your work. So um, if we just take, I don't know, we take take MMC, take modern methods of construction. Inevitably, then, um, when we talk about it, we have to talk about standardization. We have to talk about prefabrication. We have to, of course, refer to modernize or die, you know. Um, I cannot tell you the number of student work I have, number of student essays I have read that Mark Farmer has influenced. So well done, Mark. Great influence there. Um, But to be able to understand and negotiate what terms mean is important. But at some point, you have to draw the line and say, actually, I think we've got to a point where we have an agreed, uh, a consensus view on what this means. So for me, actually, the role of standards, by which I don't mean a limiting thing, I mean an agreed common set of terms, is incredibly important. And so actually, you know, it's really interesting if we take BIM, because um, if we look at a, a comparison between the UK and other countries, our, if, our view of BIM and our understanding of BIM, for me, is incredibly robust. It's incredibly widespread. And I think actually the UK gives itself a really hard time sometimes um, thinking, oh, some, you know, another country is ahead of us. We're running behind. But actually in construction, the UK, in terms of its innovation and its practices, is incredibly highly regarded. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I remember it was a sort of part of a deliberate um, uh, strategy to sort of publish the UK BIM standards or try and make them, you know, the de, de facto, you know, international standards, which is obviously obviously happening. Do you think there's a there's an opportunity we should be following that with then, you know, platforms and these other things? We should go, right, you know, the BIM standards were just a way of 
clearing a path for all the things that followed we could lean into this and start to really export these things i've talked to keith waller about this on on this mm-hmm. podcast previously do you think that's a opportunity we should be focusing on particularly sort of post brexit and now we're working on what to do next well i've been thinking about this for a while because i think um does it go back to construction 2025 um uh, where we were talking about the sort of the value the the export value where Peter Hansford was talking about the export value of of the skills, the expertise that we have um, in our industry on behalf of the nation. And I don't think we really understand that, to be honest. I don't think we know how to exploit it particularly well as a sector. I think some firms do. And I think, obviously, Brydenwood is is one of the firms I would probably point to. and I say that genuinely, not just because you're interviewing me today, <laughs> of course. Um, but I would I would cite others in that, of course. You know, Arab have been international for a very long time, of course. Um, but if you think about, okay, how do we promote ourselves internationally? Um, I don't think uh, we do a great job of that as UK construction. I think we've got so much more to give. I don't know. I don't think we know how to configure that expertise. So if you look at um, 19650, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the things that always frustrates me is that when these when standards land elsewhere, people say, wow, this is fantastic. And actually, are we I say we as a sector are construction businesses enabling their staff to take part in the creation of standards? For me, that I, you know, I chaired a BSI committee, and it's it was always a, it was always a problem to try to get people to take part in standards committees. It feels like um, firms think, oh well, it, you know, it's like a charitable donation in some respect, but it's got to be about advancing the whole sector, hasn't it? And I wondered, you know, I did wonder idly the other day um, about uh, Construction Leadership Council and Construction Industry Council and how they could actually trigger some really quite interesting moves in the sector to make sure that we have that sort of international profile that we, well, I think richly deserve. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to talk about standards, but it's a... uh... Yeah, topic I'm actually bizarrely interested. There is something really interesting about the the I mean, I've been involved in obviously the original PAS documents and oh what a what a process. I mean, I can see why people don't get excited about it. It's quite a it's quite a weighty process. I was talking to someone the other day and saying, you know, the lag between you know innovation happening and the standards keeping up is is will start to get in the way i suspect as we start to get quicker and quicker at you know iteration and innovation i i've seen i haven't looked at it in enormous detail but highways have got a sort of a, almost like a wikipedia version of standards and i think that's quite an interesting model that, that rather than go through this kind of you know endless consultation and commentary you could do something not for all of them but there must be some there must be a better way of of leading into some of those kind of open source type things or mm. wikipedia type things of of getting firstly more people involved getting to consensus quicker and you know driving a better outcome i don't know whether you've had any thoughts on that or whether you've looked at some other models of how people write standards because it does feel that we do yeah, yeah they are absolutely critical but the time and effort taken and the you know the way they're written does not engender you know does not encourage people to uh, engage in the same in the way that you think they should do yeah i i have thought about this because of the work that i did years ago on and, and trying to still do you know, amongst all the other things um, around responsible sourcing of construction products and of course the if you like the the main standard for responsible sourcing is a private standard created by BRE BES 6001 very influential certified you know a couple of hundred or so products I think now something like that 
but it wasn't a um, uh, the same sort of standard process standardization process that you would have for an ISO for example completely different because it's a private standard and actually I don't think we necessarily quite understand the kind of configuration of the different options we have available to us and it's interesting that we're talking about that because um, we've been in our using in our teaching um, recently of course the construction playbook which came out in December and trying to help students to understand and get a handle on a very influential document which is not a standard, which is not a piece of legislation. <laughs> you know, so I think there is a challenge in understanding where information sits and the, author the relative authority and legitimacy that it has, whether you're in business, whether you're a client, whether you're studying the sector. Very interesting space. And I, I couldn't point to um, any particular source which gives clarity on that, actually. Yeah, you've probably seen the work we did for the um, uh, the hub on the define the need piece, taking all of the cross-sector pipeline and putting it into Uniclass, which was incredibly painful exercise because no one had tried to do it before. And again, semantics got in the way. Every department have, has its own nomenclature for all the um, base types. But when we put it all together, you could suddenly – it unlocked all these things that people intuitively knew about the kind of level of cross-sector commonality, but no one could quite articulate – so suddenly that's, you know, a massive piece of evidence towards the, um, uh, yeah, how you can unlock platforms, how you can unlock this sort of um, industrialised construction. But it was really painful getting there. And I'm just, yeah, very hopeful that we don't then leave that as a proof of concept, and never come back to it. You want that to become, you know, more and more common and more and more sort of standardised. But it's those sorts of things that are really going to unleash the benefit. But yeah, there's always a, a um, I suppose in my head, interesting thing between everyone wants to get on and do the kind of interesting groovy stuff. People, the same people don't necessarily want to write the standards because, again, oh, it sounds like a bit dull, but you go, no, no, one's a complete foundational underpinning of the other. You can't really have one without the other. So I don't know whether you'd, you'd agree or whether that's something you've sort of, you, you must have tackled over your, your career. Well, it's difficult to know where to start with that, to be honest, because, you know, I've got a huge amount of respect um, and actually you know, appreciation for people who do get involved in developing standards. Because these, this is a long-term, uh, sometimes, as you quite rightly say, gruelling effort. And once you move to the international standards-making space, the language issues become even broader, wider, open to debate. Political differences, cultural differences come into it. It's incredibly diverse. Perseverance is, for me, incredibly important in this. If you think about it, why shouldn't it be? You know, we're in the business of creating buildings that we expect, generally, to last a very long time. So, actually, the, the underpinnings of our, our design processes um, and regulations, they should have a significant and authentic and authoritative amount of input to them in their development and you know the one thing just moving on to the idea of regulations to some extent the one thing that bothers me uh, when we do research with industry is the number of times people will say ah oh, well the building regulations should tell us what to do this is i mean for me this is a this is always a disappointment <laughs> when people say this because the building regulations are not there to inspire the industry they are not there to set our ambition, right? 
they are there as as regulations. It, that's why they're called building regulations. But the industry has, at its, at its worst, it has this really quite negative way of thinking about itself, which I think curtails its ambition. Um, so if, if it's doing that, then the likelihood is it can't really see the long-term value of investing time in developing effective standards. Yeah, that's no, we've never talked about this before. That's really interesting. There's something really interesting there about the... Um, you're right, the long-term nature of buildings and the long-term nature of building projects even, but the short-term nature of decision-making. And you go, that's really weird, isn't it? That, yeah, if I always think that there's not enough effort put into the front end of projects. We've talked about this this before, you know, the kind of understand the brief and opening up the problem statement. I think even the design period, there's not enough effort at the front end. When you consider the life of a building, and it's going to be there for 100 years or 60 years, you can probably spend a couple more months at the front end getting the project right and not launching into a thing that's going to be a car crash for the for the, the rest of the project. Yeah, I've never thought of it in terms of quite how long-term actually some of the, the implications of the things we do are and therefore, yeah, why you should put this kind of effort into the front end. But you're right, that's that's why these things take time and actually that's why they should they need to be persistent and correct because they have a you know, such a, a long period after them. Yeah, that's really interesting actually. Brilliant. Moving on, so you're... You've obviously worked in the industry for a long time. Do you think through things like uh, TCN Plus? I mean, I'm interested, are we getting the right people into construction? I think it's a general question that we've asked on this, this, this podcast a few times is, you know, what's your prognosis for the kind of the future of the industry? Uh, and particularly, do you see, you know, the people coming through universities, are we attracting the right sort of people into construction? Are we missing out maybe on people that are not coming into construction because they don't see it either as a place of, you know, some really interesting academic research or that it's, you know, it doesn't lead anywhere even if you did a piece of academic research. What's your sort of view on that from a, from a you know, from your point of view? Yeah, so have we got another hour? <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, um, the, the short answer is could do better, okay? And a number of reasons why I would say this. Um, it, it's always been curious to me why we don't have enough women in the sector. And of course, that's, you know, that's something close to my heart, but it's close to many people's hearts, actually. So the issue of gender and race in our industry, it's still there. People are working on it. I'm seeing a lot more activity these days than there ever has been. So let, let's, let's set that one aside for a moment. If we then look at the industry as uh, and the academic researchers are, who are part, for me, part of the industry, let's think about this as a whole. What we're not doing as a collective is conveying the level of um, stimulation, the interest, the fascination that we have, um, why we're in the industry and why we stay in the industry. Why, you know, how do we convey that level of interest and enthusiasm to people? I think there's been a lot of interest and a lot of activity on engineering. But there's something about separating construction from engineering that we have to do and the language that we talk about. So one of the things I'm really interested in is trying to look at the skills that we need the competencies that we need. And, you know, the first things, I remember saying this a couple, uh, maybe a couple of years ago at a conference, um, remember when the national curriculum changed in schools and coding came onto the national curriculum. 
Think of all those years of school children who are coming through with those digital skills, with those coding skills. They are available in principle to construction in the same way that they are available to other industries when these uh, young people come through to study and graduate. My question is, where do they put the indicator on and turn off on a different route? And that's what we have to make sure that we actually are capturing people with the new skills that we need. So it's always my, you know, there's a few of us in the academic world who have a great deal of respect for uh, the leaders in industry who are very committed to bringing apprentices and young people in. But don't forget the graduates. Don't forget the master students, because actually they've got the higher level skills to land directly into management levels of organisations and make really significant shifts in how things are done. I remember very clearly um, a placement student coming back from a placement um, from a construction management degree programme and saying the people I was working with on site, the senior managers were crying when I left because none of them could drive Revit. Okay, none of them could use it. And so (laughs) it's a simple example, but I think it's effective. Um, Let's really privilege these digital competencies because this isn't optional. Come on, (laughs) we need it. Yeah, I mean, we've thought about this a lot. Even if they turned up with their digital skills, not everyone knows what to do with them. It needs the right organisation with the right kind of fit to actually be able to leverage those skills. And I think that's one of the things we're not getting the industry ready for them. So they're going to arrive and there won't be anything for them to do. And they'll go, oh, that's a bit dull, I'll go off and do something else. I think that's my concern is the kind of the spark gap between, uh, yeah, clearing a path and making sure that we can actually leverage them and let them loose on it. So things that, you know, you've seen some of the apps that we've been doing that were deliberately aimed at, uh, you know, lowering, again, barriers to entry. So, yeah, that's quite an interesting uh, take on where the industry is. The other point about that, of course, is something that I've really noticed since arriving at UCL. The number of data scientists that we have working on studies of of construction, the built environment. You know, we have um, one particular part of our faculty, which is almost entirely data scientists looking at the built environment. So actually, you know, I think there's work for everybody to do on this, but we know the people are there. You're right. We've got to make a digital home in construction. Yeah. It must be one of the sectors. I've got no evidence for this, but it feels like it must be one of the sectors which has got the most amount of data, which is completely untapped and just sort of lying about and no one doing anything with it. Again, we must have huge amounts of data that could be put to use. And we haven't got a hope of getting into digital twins and smart assets and all the rest of it. Again, we're not doing a particularly good job of the data we've currently got. So, yeah, that, again, that's one of the um, uh, huge gaps. Which brings me, it's probably uh, just conscious time, the last question maybe. So moving forward, um, assuming we got another round of funding, what are all the things that you didn't get to do in TCM that you'd like to do? Or where are the gaps that you'd like to cover? Or if you had a wish list, what are all the topics that you think need sort of further explanation? So obviously data science, and you know we've talked about one of them. What do you think are the pockets that, that either you didn't get around to this time or you've learned about and you're thinking, oh, that needs a project, that needs looking at? What are the kind of uh, things you'd like to explore moving forward, assuming we get, we get a chance? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. And Where we are now is actually quite different to where we were two, three years ago, to be honest. Um, My view is that there's a couple of things I would 
beyond the data science side, um, a couple of things I would really bring forward. I think um, in our team, we very much really started to understand the business model innovation that is possible. What we don't yet understand is how to you know, take that forward. I think we'd like to move to a point where we've got uh, maybe some well, we call it action research. It kind of means doing on the ground and studying it whilst you're doing it. <laughs> but the idea actually that we could start to test within live construction projects or firms, test out some different business models. Now, that I mean, I can imagine some people just sweating at the thought of that. It's pretty risky stuff. But if we could find some businesses where we could go in and do that, I think that would be a magnificent opportunity. I'd really relish that. You know, in um, platforms, this is um, active niches, I think, isn't it? Where you've actually got a little segment of a, of a company set aside to take, you know, to really um, undertake some risky sort of work. Um, I, I think that would be a marvellous opportunity. Um, to be honest, though, in the bigger context, we really, really need to accelerate our action around net zero carbon and climate change. Uh, we're not moving fast enough on that as a sector at all. So I would absolutely bring that forward. The business model ones, yeah, that's fascinating. It is where it needs to happen. I mean, yeah, what, we've talked before on this podcast that the things that are holding us back actually aren't really the technical bits now. A lot of it is the cultural and the, uh, yeah, insurances, warranties and things. It would need, I suspect... Or one way you could do it is you'd want a client that was able to absolve a kind of little special purpose vehicle or something or some of the normal risk. I think you couldn't do it as a business model on its own. You'd also need the right project and the right client to sponsor it. Maybe one of the things we did early in the day um, for Heathrow, the peer segregation things, we used to describe it as being a sort of bubble where someone had taken away all the friction and all the kind of normal constraints and said, right, just get on, make this happen uh covid's like you know the world's version of that where everyone said right we're going to be super digital in two months go because <laughs> you just have to yeah it needs something like that doesn't it someone to actually change the game or take take the brakes off to allow these things to happen so yeah that's one we'd yeah i'd, I'd love to keep talking about that in due course because i think that's where it's going to happen and you say i think we live in a world where every, we've talked about this before that every other sector's had some disruptive business model that's tipped things on their heads construction so risk averse and again because of the long-term implications if you get a digital thing slightly wrong it's got a transience that doesn't matter whereas if you build a building wrong or a school wrong then that's got some you know some implications so yeah that's a, a yeah topic for another day maybe to, to talk about um very last question we ask everyone this and it's a uh, obviously impossible question but where do you think given what you what you know about and you've just mentioned the fact that we've changed a lot in the last couple of years you know five ten years if everything went well you know, have you got some thoughts about where the industry could get to if all of these things converge in, right, in the right way or where we should be aiming to get to in the next decade? As you say, I think the net carbon one's massive. If we haven't solved this significantly in 10 years, then we really are facing some enormous problems. So uh, any sort of thoughts around that? So you're absolutely right. The The net zero carbon is the mandatory thing. We have to do that that is absolutely business critical. But, you know, in, in five to maybe ten, let's say 10 years, it's a bit more generous. But I'd like to look at an industry and particularly the major contractors, and I'd like to look at them and not see any that were still based 
on return on capital employed. This is not sustainable. I cannot believe we still have so many major contractors in business where they are still operating on this model. This, I mean, it, this is incredible, quite honestly. And surely, 10 years time, things on that will have changed. If that's changed, then they've got more, then they're being judged on return on investment. They're investing in their businesses. They're doing more R&D. They understand a you know, where they need to change. They are creating the net zero businesses. They've probably disrupted their business. They've probably changed. So for me, the change will be seen in the contractors. Yes. Yeah, that's brilliant because I've heard that talked about an awful lot. Everyone sort of says, or a number of people have said, yeah, it's going to happen in the tier one contractors. That's the, that's the one that uh, when we talked to um, Josh Johnson McKinsey last time, he said that's where the change, the biggest opportunity for change is going to happen. But no one's articulated exactly what that looks like. That's probably the best articulation I've heard of what they should be heading towards. That's incredibly useful, actually. So brilliant. We're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. Um, loads more we could have talked about. And I look forward to catching up with you uh, in real life once things settle down. So thanks ever so much for coming on and um, offering your, your insights. My absolute pleasure, Jamie. I look forward to revisiting our conversation on business model disruption. I'm sure that let's be disruptive. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. So thanks for listening and please join us next month on Built Environment Matters. Thank you for listening to Built Environment Matters, a podcast brought to you by Bride and Wood. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcast and you can follow Bride and Wood on LinkedIn and Twitter.